and welcome to the Iran podcast. I'm Negar Mortazavi in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about a progressive vision for U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East and how a small but increasingly powerful group of thinkers are challenging the status quo. My guest today is Matthew Duss, foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. He's joining me from Alexandria in Virginia. Matt, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. Um, let's talk about your recent piece in Foreign Affairs magazine. You had this piece a couple months ago. It was titled U.S. Foreign Policy Never Recovered from the War on Terror. It's essentially your vision of, of the future of U.S. foreign policy, the direction that you think it should go. And you explain that after the September 11th attacks, when the United States declared its global war on terror um, and went abroad in search of monsters, essentially ended up, as you say, midwifing new ones. And then you somehow conclude that only a reckoning with a disastrous legacy of 9-11 can heal the United States. Talk about this piece. I encourage everyone to go and read it in Foreign Affairs, but also your vision of, of where do you think the United States stands right now and why? All right. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, I think that piece, it does offer a vision for the future, but it's also rooted in the past. I mean, I think the big, the main thrust of that piece, um, going from its title, is to say, is to understand, I mean, encouraging people to understand and think about how the war on terror and the various policies that were pursued as part of the war on terror, and importantly, the political rhetoric and the 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 discourse, the, the really militaristic discourse, anti-Muslim discourse, the aggressive kind of clash of civilizations discourse that promoted the war on terror um, has been really disastrous for our society, for American society, for American politics. Obviously, the war on terror, um, the Iraq war, and you know, you know, other policies have been disastrous for communities in the Middle East and elsewhere. But uh, I mean, one of the big, you know, arguments of that foreign affairs piece was, you know, encouraging people to think about the way that a lot of these things have blown back on American society and American politics. And I think we've seen really strong evidence of that over the past few months, whether it's the kind of militaristic police response to some of the civil rights protests we saw in the summer after the murder of George Floyd. Um, I think a lot of what we saw, you know, in, you know, the, the insurrection, the invasion of the U.S. Capitol in support of Trump is in part a, a, a result of this discourse. Um, but the piece basically says we need to take stock. We need to really think about, you know, some of the ideas and policies and the rhetoric that was used to promote this vision of American foreign policy over the past 20 years if we really want to move forward in a way that's much more constructive and much more, much more unified. We can't simply put it aside and imagine that we can move forward without looking back. Mm -hmm. And after looking back, what is your vision for basically moving away from this era of war and terror and where American foreign policy should be leading? And specifically, I want us to look at the Middle East and then later talk about Iran. But what is your vision for for the direction that you think the country should go? 
Well, I hear I would, you know, I would point to things that my boss, Senator Bernie Sanders, has been talking about for a long time. It's a vision of foreign policy that is, you know, with, which puts diplomacy first, which recognizes that, you know, the, the United States, obviously, we need to defend ourselves. We need to promote security for American citizens. We need to promote the prosperity of American citizens. Um, but we also, as, as Senator Sanders sees it, and I, you know, I agree with him, I mean, his vision is one in which the United States tries to find areas of cooperation with people around the world, recognizing that our security and our dignity and our prosperity is bound up with that of others all around the world. We are not, you know, we're, you know, no one, we are not in this for ourselves. We are all in this together. I think that is probably the best description of Bernie Sanders' vision, as, as, as I can put it. And, you know, American foreign policy should reflect that. Um, it should look to build partnerships and relationships and, and multilateral institutions to promote a, a, a kind of vision of collective human dignity and collective human security. Um, I think that's the, the, the simplest way I can put it. Mm -hmm. And all of this makes so much sense. But you have, you and I have both lived in this town. You've been in this town, Washington, for so so much longer. You worked in this town. Why doesn't this happen? Everything that you seem like makes so much sense. What is the resistance to basically taking an approach on foreign policy that seems to be more just, more equitable, and just better for the world? I mean, that's a tough question. I mean, I, I would just, I would say one is there are people who obviously have very different views of how to promote American security. Um, there are people who believe that we, America, that, you know, this idea of solidarity and cooperation between countries is, uh, you know, a dangerous illusion. Um, they believe that, mil you know, military power is the only way to promote American security. Um, I think we've seen that idea tested over the past 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um you know, whether we look at the war in Iraq or some of these other policies that were pursued under the war on terror, this idea that, you know, we can use the military tool to transform these regions in a way that benefits the security of the region and the American people. And I think that idea has just been conclusively discredited. I think the use of the military tool has produced more problems than it solved. Um, I don't even think that's debatable at this point. Um, but still, I think there are a lot of interests involved here, whether they're intellectual or economic, um, whether we're, we're talking about you know defense contractors who obviously have an interest in continuing to sell weapons and promoting policy that uh, require people to use and buy more weapons. But it's not as simple as that. I, I think another piece of it is just you know talking about national security issues in a way that addresses people's real fears. And these are legitimate fears um, and offering, you know, military violence as the way to kind of address those fears is attractive politically. And we certainly have a large contingent of, you know, individuals and organizations in Washington that are very happy to continue to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been called as Bernie's outsider on the inside, the man who's helping him shape his foreign policy. And in this One Nation piece, um, there was basically the question is, can Matt Dust take on Washington's blob? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, and, and it's calling you part of a new generation of progressives fighting an entrenched status quo. Talk about the blob and f- for part of our audience yeah. who's actually not familiar with Washington, the Beltway, the blob, or even the United States as much. Who is the blob? What is the function of blob? And can you take on Washington's blob? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I mean, the blob is a term that um, ben Rhodes, um, who was a foreign policy advisor to President Barack Obama, came up with um, to describe kind of Washington groupthink, you know, this kind of the establishment, you know, ways of thinking about American foreign policy and the use of American power and the, you know, the prominent role that the military plays in the expression of American power. Um, and this idea that like whenever you promote diplomacy or promote other tools of American power, you're going to run into resistance from the establishment in Washington. And I think that's valuable in as much as, you know, it's important to note that there is a kind of, you know, conventional wisdom in Washington that you're going to run up against when you promote other ideas about security and about foreign policy. Um, But I also think it's important to kind of be able to move past that and begin to talk about, okay, what is our new conception um, now, as to my role here, I consider myself, you know, part of a movement of people um, who are, you know, I, you know, I've been critical of the conventional wisdom, and I'm lucky enough to work for uh, someone, Senator Bernie Sanders, who has also, for a very, very long time, been critical of the conventional wisdom on foreign policy and on a whole range of other policy issues. Um, you know, but foreign policy is something where he has mounted, I think, a pretty effective critique over the past years, and I've been glad to work with him on on that. But, you know, saying that, you know, as I was describing before, just this idea, uh, you know, of understanding that our security and our, and our prosperity is bound up and related to the security and the prosperity of others around the world. Um, and I think there's more and more people and members of Congress who are thinking this way and also outside groups, advocacy organizations, grassroots organizations who are, you know, coming along and joining this coalition that's pushing back on the blob. Mm-hmm. Um, now, let's uh, talk about the Middle East a little bit. And I want to ask you about Iran. The past four years specifically, we've seen very different in some ways um, policies from the White House towards the region, sort of new uh, focus on certain allies and countries in the region, and also combined with this campaign of so-called maximum pressure on Iran. What is your assessment of the past four years of basically the Trump administration's Middle East policy and where um, the legacy that uh, Joe Biden is inherited mm. from that administration. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's, as I see it, there's very little. I mean, listen, I don't think anyone seriously doubted that the United States, if it really, really wanted to, could create economic difficulty for Iran, um, and it has done that. I think it has done that at great cost to American security and American relationships and American alliances. I think that is. That's what the Trump policy of maximum pressure has done. Um, you know, the United States under Barack Obama, uh, you know, you know, engaged in a really painstaking negotiation alongside our closest allies in the P5 plus one um, and with Iran to get 
the nuclear deal, the JCPOA. Um, Trump, for his own reasons, I don't know how complicated Trump's own reasons were. I think, as with most things, he just wanted to try and, you know, destroy the accomplishments of Barack Obama. But there are certainly others in Washington who have been advising him and supporting him who, you know, have a generally hostile view of Iran and their 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 opposition to the JCPOA is not so much to do with the JCPOA's actual terms and details. It's just with the idea of making an agreement with Iran. I mean, that's that's where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what President Joe Biden is faced with. But again, you know, President Biden was vice president under Barack Obama and was a key foreign policy advisor, someone who's in, you know, who has been involved in foreign policy for a very long time and brings with him a team that was you know, very closely involved in the negotiation of the JCPOA. So I think they are in a very, very good position um, to you know, restore that deal and then seek a broader negotiation, as they, as they have said they would do uh, with Iran. Okay, I'm here speaking with Matthew Duss, foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Um, so, Matt, we we were talking about the four years of maximum pressure under Donald Trump, and now there's a new administration, there's a new direction, basically, for foreign policy, if not a complete U-turn of what we saw in the past four years. How do you see the Biden vision of Middle East policy and specifically towards Iran, what the president has said and the team that he's setting up around him? How do you see the prospect for for this administration moving forward? Well, I think when we think about a Biden administration's approach to the Middle East, I think it's important to kind of step back and think about what the Biden administration has said about foreign policy more generally. And here I would, you know, direct people to what what you know President Biden, you know, wrote in Foreign Affairs uh, in in the last year, um, and things that you know Secretary of State Tony Blinken has said and written. But also, I would direct them to what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has said, you know, especially his remarks um, when you know at, when when a number of you know Biden's early national security picks were announced, and he gave some brief remarks. Um, and he talked about connecting American foreign policy to, you know, the American middle class, to working Americans' real lives. And I think this is a very key way to understand how the Biden administration is going to go about foreign policy in the broadest sense, is to say, we're going to pursue policies that really benefit and in a way that Americans can actually see the benefit to their lives, to their futures, to their children's lives and their communities. And I think that's really important because it's a recognition that so many of these policies that have pursued over the past years have been in some ways disconnected from you know, the American population. There's been this disconnect between the way we in Washington talk about and, and execute foreign policy and the way many Americans um, you know, our fellow Americans think about and understand foreign policy. And I think the approach is to say, this is how it's working for you and to engage with Americans all over the country um, and to hear their experiences and to understand how they think about and experience the impact of foreign policy and to make sure that the, the policy choices that are made are rooted in the real concerns and building the future for American communities. Mm-hmm. And can you also talk about some of the differences of the vision or at least foreign policy towards the region between 
current President Joe Biden and your boss, Bernie Sanders, who also ran for president. You were part of the campaign at some point. And um, he's, he has the basically the most progressive wing of the Democratic Party is now represented by Bernie Sanders. What mm. do you see as some of the main areas of difference when it comes to their vision towards the region, the Middle East? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I think the differences are important, but I would also say, you know, the, you know, the agreements are probably more important. And here, this is, you know, the issue of Iran and diplomacy with Iran rejoining the JCPOA and then seeking a broader negotiation to de-escalate tension between the United States and Iran, to de-escalate tension between countries in the region and Iran is an area of very strong agreement between Senator Sanders and President Biden. Um, and I think in the broader Democratic Party, and I think that is one of the most important things, um, you know, to really keep in mind here is that, you know, obviously the United States and Iran have a very tense history for reasons we don't have to go into. But, mm -hmm. you know, they spent a lot of time avoiding talking to each other. I think there was a moment in the Obama administration, obviously, where there was a real negotiation going on and they came to an important agreement. Um, Trump reversed that. But I do think there is a very strong uh, consensus within the Democratic Party, and I would suggest more broadly than just the Democratic Party, but on the part of the American people to really seek to find some way forward between the United States and Iran that is not just, you know, hostility and continued conflict. Mm -hmm. And let's also talk about a person who's come to light uh, these past days over a week, Robert Malley, a former uh, White House official in the Obama administration who was actually a central figure in the negotiations with Iran back then, who is now a likely pick for the Biden team's um, Iran envoy, basically the top person working mm -hmm. on Iran. Uh, talk about the significance of Robert Malley. What does picking someone like him signal as far as the direction this administration wants to go on Iran? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll just cop right now at the front to, and just disclose. I mean, I've known Rob for a long time. He's a friend. He's I admire him a great deal. So I am not an unbiased <laughs> commentator. Mm. Give us your uh, biased view of Rob. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's, yes, exactly. My biased view. I mean, I think Rob is, you know, really one of the best and most thoughtful foreign policy analysts in Washington. And part of this, the part of the reason why is that he just is willing to talk to anyone. He understands that to do effective diplomacy, you need to understand what people think and how they perceive their own interests and their own security concerns, whether or not you see those concerns as legitimate, whether or not you agree with those views. I mean, in order to actually do an effective negotiation, you need to understand we, where people are coming from. And I think this is one of the reasons why he's been criticized, you know, when he talks to, you know, whether extremist groups, whether you're talking about Hamas or whomever, um, mm. you know, people for understandable reasons don't like these groups. Um, mm. But I think it's important to defend, you know, talking to these groups to understand what their interests are if we want to get to a point where we are de-escalating violence, reducing violence and getting to, you know, agreements that can create, you know, create trust, create better futures for people. You have to talk to people you disagree with. You have to talk to people you disagree with a great deal. Um, that's how diplomacy works. Mm 
And I think Rob has shown throughout his career uh, a real commitment to that. Mm -hmm. And we also see a lot of attacks and I would say even false accusations or smears coming his way. Why do you think the focus on Rob Malley? Because there's also other people coming into the administration, or at least being rumored, uh, that have been central figures in negotiations in the past. And basically, my question is, do you think these attacks are directed as Rob? Is he going to be the last one or is this more about diplomacy? and the direction that this administration is going? No, no, I don't think it's about Rob really personally at all. I think it's directed at the policy. Um, I think you have, you know, people who disagree with Biden's Iran policy. Um, they, they are, you know, upset at the fact that Biden ran on a promise to, you know, pursue diplomacy with Iran and then he won and they are seeking opportunities and ways to kind of undermine that or push back on that or try to change President Biden's mind on that. And one of the ways they're trying to do that is to kind of attack uh, the person who seems likely to be chosen to head up the Iran diplomacy for him. Um, you know, it almost certainly will not be the last person who is attacked in this way. But I think the key thing to keep in mind is like, it's not about this person. It is about the policy. It's about a policy of diplomacy first. It's about talking to our adversaries. And there are just people in Washington who fundamentally disagree with that. Mm. And one of the other areas that this new team disagrees with a lot of people in Washington, and so does your boss, and I know about your view, is on other allies in the region, specifically Saudi Arabia and now the UAE, one of the two main uh, countries that are always in discussions. And we just heard a new directive from the administration that temporarily at least um, halted arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the UAE to review um, specifically in relations to the war in Yemen. What mm -hmm. do you think that or you or the basically the Bernie Sanders view should be the U.S. relationship with those countries in the region, some who are considered longtime U.S. allies like Saudi yeah. Arabia and the UAE, but also have very different, um, you know, values and um, and uh, presence in the region when it comes right. to how you see U.S. foreign policy and presence in there. Yeah, well, I mean, first, I think the decision to you know hold those arms sales is is very very good. Um, you know, the ending the war in Yemen and particularly ending U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen has been a longtime priority of Senator Bernie Sanders. He led um, in the passage of the Yemen War Powers Resolution, the first war powers resolution ever passed in the history of the Congress. Um, so to see these early steps taken by the Biden administration is, is really great. Um, we hope and expect to see more steps taken on the Yemen issue. But as to the relationship with Saudi Arabia or, or the UAE or others, you know, I think the basic approach is, you know, we want an approach that promotes the security and dignity of all people. Um, we recognize that the way we pursue these goals with regard to longtime partners like the Saudis and the Emiratis versus countries like Iran or others who we've not been friendly with are going to look different. But I think what guides you know Bernie Sanders view of the US role in the region is how to what you know what steps can we take to try and bring people together um versus promoting conflict and i think that's that's the way he's always approached foreign policy and i think that's the question he has and, and how he would approach 
you know, what what steps can we take? And here, I think it's really important to note, I think the Biden administration has talked about it in this way, too. When they rejoin the JCPOA, their next step is to pursue a much broader regional negotiation to address a a range of of issues, um, but to also start bringing in regional actors like like the Emiratis, like the Saudis and others, because they share this region. Um, and ultimately, if you want to de-escalate tension and de-escalate violence in this region, you need to try to get these 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 governments to talk to each other and not just yell at each other and fight each other. Mm. And we've heard of follow-on negotiations or basically these other issues that it's not only of concern to the U.S. or its allies in the region, it's also the Europeans um, who who are interested in pursuing them. How do you see these issues being dealt with when it comes to the Biden diplomacy with Iran beyond the issue of the nuclear program and the JCPOA, assuming that both sides are eventually going to mutually return to that deal? How do you see the follow on negotiations on these other issues unfolding? Yeah, well, I think you have to take a make a serious effort, you know, to understand the very real security concerns of all of these states whether we're talking about Iran, whether we're talking about the Emiratis, whether we're talking about Israel, um, they have legitimate security concerns. Um, Let's try to dig down onto those, but let's try and find areas of trust building on some smaller issues, whether they're environmental issues. This is something my boss has has focused on a lot. You know, climate change threatens everyone. this is not a, a particular problem for one country. It is all of our problems. So, I mean, particularly in the Middle East, where, where climate, you know, climate change has, you know, exacerbates other conflicts, you know, focusing on ways to, to, to address climate change could be a way, just one example of, of a way that it could be to bring some of these countries together um, and possibly build trust to kind of then work on some of the much tougher issues. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to talk about your work. You are a former journalist and come from the think tank world, but now you are considered actually what you've been named a relative anomaly among campaign aides or now I want to say Senate aides, being a f- having a feisty presence on Twitter. Someone's <laughs> written about you willing to publicly spar with Sanders critics. And I've, I've observed you also as well. Talk about what it's like to work, not just in the Senate, but as a foreign policy advisor for Bernie Sanders. Um, you know, it's been a privilege just to help uh, Senator Sanders really develop and and articulate a vision, a progressive vision for American foreign policy. Um, you know, I think he's talked about these issues going back many years, but since I joined his staff in, in early 2017, um, you know, helping him really think through a whole range of new issues, you know, what 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 a progressive foreign policy should look like in, in this new era. I think you can see that demonstrated in some of the legislation he supported most, I think most obviously the Yemen war powers resolution with dealt, which dealt with the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which is being, you know, driven by this war, but also, you know, the war powers resolution dealt with Congress's important role, its authorities under the constitution um, to authorize or not authorize uh, the use of military force. Um, So I think he's, you know, he's really been pushing 
both the Congress and I think the American public to rethink some of these issues. And it's just been a great uh, privilege to work with them on that. You've been doing the same as I've observed you as well. Um, and before you worked for Senator Sanders, you used to be president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, which focuses basically you focus a lot of your work on Israel and Palestine. Talk mm -hmm. about that world and if you see a prospect for sustainable peace when it comes to, you know, one of the most complex mm. issues in the region. Right. You know, so I, I, I got, I did my graduate study in Middle East studies. I focused on Iraq, um, but moving to Washington, I had always been interested in the broader region. Obviously, Iran is something that interested me, but Israel, Palestine for a long time. So I was, you know, I, I moved to the foundation. I was at the Center for American Progress for about six years, and then I moved to the Foundation for Middle East Peace in summer of 2014. Um, and it was an opportunity to really dig down on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, and and you know, the the foundation is a grant making organization, so uh, it gives out grants to a number of Israeli and Palestinian American organizations working on the conflict. And it was a great opportunity to really, you know talk to and work with a lot of activists uh, in that region who are trying to promote peace, activists in America who are trying to promote peace. I'm not going to lie. It's a tough situation for a lot of reasons. Um, it's both complex and simple, if, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I mean, mm. it is an occupation that's been ongoing since 1967. You know, I think people rightly question you know, whether a two-state solution is still possible, what are some other possibilities um, for ending the occupation and creating a future of democracy and dignity for all the people in Israel-Palestine. Um, but where I stay focused is, you know, just trying, you know, continuing to work in solidarity with my Israeli colleagues and my Palestinian colleagues who understand that whatever solution you come to, it's one in which both peoples you know, coexist in this land. Jews and Palestinians, you know, are both rooted in this land. Uh, they belong to this land. And I think the goal of U.S. policy and the goal of, of, of progressives and those who support human dignity generally is to just, you know, look at different ways that we can, you know, create a future where, you know, one people doesn't dominate another. I mean, this is not something that's unique, I think, to the Israel-Palestine issue. I mean, I think there's a consistency to how we should approach some of these issues um, in, in, in conflict areas across the world. What are the tools we have? What, what, what is a future we can envision of coexistence and dignity and security for all people? Mm -hmm. And one of the great programs you used to do at that foundation is to organize these trips for journalists to basically go and see uh, this conflict up front. I joined you, mm -hmm. full disclosure, in one of those trips, and I met some of these very interesting groups <laughs> That's right. that, that you're mentioning, both on the Israeli and the Palestinian side, working in sometimes very difficult uh, conditions to, right. towards peace. Okay, well, on that note, Matt, I want to thank you for joining the Iran podcast. It was my pleasure. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. That was Matthew Duss, foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, joining me from Virginia. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Iran podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast apps and follow us on Twitter at Iran podcast. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.